All right, well, today is exciting because we are in the first Sunday of the season of Lent. Today begins Lent. Um, actually began last Wednesday. You might have seen some of your liturgical friends with a little ashy uh, cross on their forehead. If you're not familiar, Lent is the uh, six weeks leading up to Easter Sunday, and uh, it's observed by millions of Christians all over the world. Lent is something that, you know, for a lot of people, we didn't grow up with it, so it's kind of like it's strange, and, but, you know, we think, oh, it's not like a Catholic thing or a Lutheran thing or something like that. It actually is the first origins of Lent go back to the fourth century. Uh, The first mention of is like AD 326. And Lent has always been a time of reflection and preparation leading up to Easter. And it commemorates the 40 days uh, that Jesus spent in the wilderness fasting and praying and resisting the temptation of the devil. You remember that time? And so because of that, it's often used uh, by Christians to give up something. Christians will recognize it by giving up something, to fast something during this period. Sometimes it's food or like just a habit that's become, you know, too all-encompassing in their life. Some people give up the Xbox or smoking or whatever it is you need to give up. And some people, it's an impetus for real life change, and that's a beautiful thing too. But the thing is, Lent isn't just about giving up, you know, chocolate or going vegan for 40 days. It's a time to re-examine our hearts for how well that we're living out our faith in a way that honors God and reflects His love to other people. And of course, the other important thing, the very important thing for us to remember is, it's completely optional right? It's completely optional. This isn't some religious edict handed down by Scripture. Uh, this is one of those, it's beautiful to me because it's, it's a communal practice. It was inspired by, not by the Holy Spirit, but by Christians living in community with other Christians as a way to help one another in their walk of faith. And so there's no obligation or anything like that uh, to observe it. There's no judgment. If Lent's not your thing, don't worry about it. But I will say for me, it has become such a beautiful catalyst. As somebody who didn't grow up with it, it's become a beautiful uh, tool to bring me back each year around this time to, to a mindfulness of who Christ is and how blessed I am. It's as well as a way of kind of shining a, a light on all the things that I do to all the stuff of life that I let get way too important. It's a great reminder for that. It's a, so Lent is a tool, right? It's a tool. Everybody say the word tool tool. It's a tool. It's like a rhythm in the year uh, to help keep us on track. And um, a lot of people, you know, aren't into the Christian calendar or things like that, which is fine, uh, but there's nothing wrong with it, right? We're, we're definitely into the secular calendar, right? Most people are, are into the secular. Most people are real excited, you know, when Thanksgiving or Fourth of July or Christmas or New Year's comes around like that. So we follow calendars, right? So why not follow a Christian calendar? Um, so, uh, and I'll tell you this, the bonus of fasting something for 40 days or whatever it is you decide to forego is that uh, when Easter finally does roll around, it is glorious, right? It is a celebration not not only of the spirit, but of the body, right? And like, I'm telling you what, that Easter candy, if you're going without chocolate, never tastes so good. It does. I'm just telling you that. Um, my, My resident Catholic friend, Rich, was telling me he's going without ice cream. Man, ice cream on Easter Sunday, Rich. Come on. It's going to be good. Uh, So what we want to do today, I'm very excited because we're going to start a new series of conversations we're calling Road to Resurrection, cleverly enough, as we journey toward Easter Sunday. Because uh, one of the things that we observe in the Christian world is that often the way we talk about uh, what it is to believe in Jesus, the way we talk about what it is to follow Jesus, doesn't always line up with the way like Jesus talked about those things. Isn't that funny? Um, so, so we're going to spend some time out of the Gospel of Mark, 
over the next few weeks, looking at different things that Jesus himself sort of emphasized uh, what the journey with him looks like. Daniel, my friend up, uh, the worship leader said this morning, he was talking about revival, it was so good. Is it, revival is in the air, right? We talk about revival, and we see these revivals springing up all over the th- place. You know, the, the beautiful thing happened at Asbury College, just the way, the, and I love the way even they're protecting it, right? Like, no famous people are allowed, right? It's just like, it's this pure move of the Spirit, and we see revival. We saw it last week, you know, with our Kingdom Youth Conference breaking out right here among our teens, this beautiful thing, and one of the things we see for that is that revival begins with repentance, Revival begins with repentance. There's a, there's a reason the earliest Christians uh, figured out that they needed a little Lent before their Easter, right? It begins with repentance. You look at the, in the Old Testament, right, that when those times of revival would come to Israel, it began with a call to repentance, right? And not repentance of the pagan lands. It was the repentance of God's people, or a call to repentance. You know what happens if you try to create revival without repentance? You know what you get? You get like some of the worst atrocities ever committed in the history of people in the name of Jesus, right? You get zealotry and militantism and extremism and holier-than-thou Phariseeism, and you get all this, you know, stuff without an ounce of love and humility. That's what revival looks like without repentance. So true revival, which is what we've all been crying out for in our land, begins with our repentance for the ways that we have not reflected Christ in our world. But true repentance, how does true repentance come about? Well, it begins with revelation. Repentance begins with revelation, that moment of clarity, right? If you ever you talk to a recovering alcoholic, you know, somebody maybe who's in a 12-step program or something like that, they'll tell you, like, it all started with this moment of clarity, something like a wake-up call that shakes us out of the rut of our self-delusion, We all need that moment of clarity before we can move to the repentance, right? Uh, The delusion we live under, that's when the truth comes via the Holy Spirit, hallelujah, right? And and the truth will set you free, baby. Come on, anybody anybody here? Yes, and that truth, that clarity, that revelation, it leads, when it's from the Holy Spirit, it doesn't lead to condemnation. It leads to holy repentance, which then leads us to revival. That's breakthrough, my friends, amen? So, I want to, in fact, let me just take a second. I want to tell you about this. We, uh, we invited our home life groups this past week to pray a prayer with us and to, to incorporate in your daily devotionals, in your daily communion with the Lord, a, a prayer that I have been praying. Um, it's a prayer that I am incorporating in my prayers every day for you. And I just invite everybody to just incorporate this into your, your prayers. And each of these points can be something that, you know, it's just a springboard for, for greater prayer and more revelation. But would you do me just the honor of just praying this with me right now? Because we want this to be, we want this to be our churches. This is our church prayer. This is like our Lenten prayer for this season. Amen. Pray this with me. Father God, as you continue to shape us into the image of Christ, we pray you revive us in this, a commitment to love one another as Jesus does. So no one among us walks alone May our eyes be open to those hurting and in need of your touch. Revive in us a humility to walk in the unity you said the world would take note of. May we aim to help others become more like Jesus rather than more like ourselves. Revive in us, Lord, a passion to share the good news of Christ with others so we may be disciples and disciple makers for the time is short and people are so desperate for a Savior. Amen.
if you want to incorporate that, we're, we'll have that on the website. We'll have it on Facebook, or you can take a picture of it or whatever you need to do. Um, all right, so here we go. Buckle up, buttercup. We're going to walk in. We're going to just let Jesus shine a light on us in a beautiful way. He's going to light us up, okay? All right, all right. And later at the end of this beautiful soliloquy you're hearing, we're going to be taking communion together, so you ha- hopefully you got your, your elements there. All right, we're going to go over a lot of ground today, so I'm going to be talking fast, uh, hard to believe. I'm going to be talking even faster probably than I normally talk. Um, so later when you're listening to this podcast, you might want to listen to it on like 0.5 speed, if you can do that. Uh, we're going to start in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. If you have a Bible or a phone app or ancient scroll, whatever it is you carry around, or, or you could just read it on the screen. We're going to have it just so we can follow along. Notice how Mark 1 begins. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. Some of your Bibles will say Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah or Jesus Christ, because that's what uh, Christ means, right? Christ, we all know G- Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. Jesus wasn't born to Mr. and Mrs. Joseph and Mary Christ. Christ is a title, the Messiah, right? Uh, it says, so the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ the, or the Messiah, the Son of God. That, my friends, is pretty much a good thesis statement for what the book is all about, the beginning of the good news. Now, good news, as many of you know, is that word gospel. And gospel is a, that is a royal word. It's a royal word. It's a political word in the culture of their time. The gospel was, it wasn't necessarily a religious word back then. It was a political word. If a new Caesar came on the throne, that was considered the gospel. If, if the leader of the, the nation had a son or a daughter or had a child, it, that was good news. That was the gospel that was proclaimed. So this was like, this was like a, um, uh, it, it was this loaded word that we're using here. Now, you know, we've Christianized it kind of over in the 2,000 years since, but gospel just meant an announcement of royal importance and significance for the whole world. So Mark is saying, okay, let's begin at the beginning. And, and the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. That's, that phrase, Son of God, is interesting. It actually ends the book of Mark 2. In Mark uh, chapter 15, with Mark, with the uh, centurion looking up on the crucified Christ, he's looking up at Jesus on the cross, and the centurion says, truly this man was the Son of God. So anytime you got a biblical author that begins his book and ends his book with this phrase, that explains the purpose of everything in the middle. So, you get, so, so we get to see that Jesus was indeed the unique Son of God. And then Mark, he starts quoting the Old Testament, verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Mark actually recites two different passages, one's from Isaiah, one's from Malachi, but he cites the greater prophet, as was the custom of the time. And so what's interesting is the beginning of the gospel, notice here, the beginning of the gospel, the good news for Mark, it doesn't begin with Jesus, just with Jesus, it begins with the Old Testament. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I was told that the good news about Jesus, the good news began with, I'm a sinner and that God is holy, and that there's this gap between me and God, and through Jesus' death, he fills that gap for me, and then if I believe in him, I go to heaven when I die. Well, the problem is in that several of those sentences are true, but that's not the fullest or most important expression of good newsing in the Bible. Uh, If your version of good news doesn't include the first two-thirds of the book, it's not really the good news of the Bible, is it, right? And so, in fact, what's interesting is none of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, start with, here's this guy Jesus out of nowhere. 
None of them do. They all start with, hey, remember Israel? Remember, what's, remember that story? Jesus is coming out of that story. And then, yes, what Jesus launches is this whole new beautiful thing. He launches a whole new story, and we enter into a new covenant that we live in. But for us Gentiles here 2,000 years later, this good news about Jesus, uh, it has to be understood as the culmination of the first two-thirds of the Bible. So we really need to begin from there and see why that is. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to do something I don't think has ever been done before. It's going to be exciting. Uh, We're going to summarize the entire story of the Old Testament in like 10 minutes. Um, I'm totally optimistic that we can do it, all right? I can. Thousands of years of history in 10 minutes. It's going to be glorious. I I can feel the giddy excitement just coming from you. I I hear the applause, not audibly, obviously, but in my heart, I I hear it coming. Uh, So what we're going to do, kids, we're going to go from Genesis to Malachi, and uh, we're going to walk through it, and then what that's going to do is set up the announcement uh, that Jesus is going to make. So there is a payoff here. Just hang with me. If you feel the need to sort of nod off for the next few minutes, it's okay. That'll be okay. No judgment. But I I promise you there is a payoff. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1 because the good news of the Bible, by the way, doesn't start in Genesis chapter 3 with you're a dirty, filthy sinner. It starts in Genesis chapter 1 with in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and we're told that everything he created was good, right? So, So what we have here is an origin story about how God creates, he fills, he forms for six days or periods or epics or, you know, whatever you like, uh, whatever you're down with. And then we, we arrive at the creation of the humans on the sixth day. And then, and it says this, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And we've talked a lot about this before, but these are royal words. In our image, in our likeness. These are royal words. These words aren't just plucked out of thin air. Uh, these, the, these words reflect an actual, uh, particular ancient time and place. Uh, and I know we're not really familiar with, you know, Near Eastern ancient cosmology. Uh, that's okay, I get that. But the idea is that God is a king, and he is establishing a kingdom. And so this language that they're using is right out of the culture of the day. Uh, ancient Near Eastern kings would have these images or likenesses spread throughout the kingdom to, re- to remind everybody to represent their authority throughout the kingdom. And so these are words that are common in the ancient Near East. Images and likenesses. Images and likenesses, they're concrete representations of the king's authority. So the picture here is that this God, the God, the creator God, created human beings, and he delegated some of his authority and his power to them, the ability to be choice makers, right, and to exercise their will with wisdom. And so he creates them in his image and likeness so that they may rule. They may rule. And that word rule doesn't mean like to pollute or to terrify or something like that. It means to, it just means to take it somewhere. Take this thing that I started and and do something. Take it somewhere. This creation is loaded with potential. Do something with it. The incredible scholar John Walton um, says that to the early Israelites, you know, who were writing this and who were listening to this, to them, Genesis isn't so much concerned with how stuff is made. That's kind of more of our more recent, like, post-enlightenment period. We're worried about where does the stuff come from? Genesis, what it is answering the question, what it's concerned with is how God brings order out of chaos, how God turns matter into masterpieces, and that's the, the, what they're getting at here. So that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. 
verse 27. So God created mankind in his image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female. He created them, male and female, made in the image of God. God blessed them and he said to them, notice what he tells them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. The word for subdue, kabosh, is my favorite Hebrew word, kabosh. Um, it's a, it literally means bring order to it. That's what subdue means, bring order. So he's commissioning humans to be co-creators in what he just did, right? God said, here, I've given you this. Now you take it, take it even further, bring order, rule over the fish and all the animals. So notice here, these first humans that he sends out, he says, fill the earth, they're given a vocation. This is God's kingship over the world is manifested through these humans, we, that's an amazing privilege, isn't it, right? And so, it's a, and we're given not only this kingly vocation, but look in chapter 2. We read that God creates a specific person. Now we read about a specific person. This, this person we know is Adam. Interestingly enough, Adam's not made through the spoken word that we hear in chapter 1, those men and women in chapter 1, but this time, this person is made out of dust. He's made out of the stuff of the earth that already existed. <laughs> now, now I know somebody's brain just went poof. Just hang with me. Just take me by the hand. Trust me here. It's going to be okay. God takes this human and puts him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now, where is, where is he placed, Adam? Garden of Eden. Very good. Unlike the humans in chapter one who were told to run all around the world making babies and subduing the earth, this human is placed in a local place, a specific place, garden, given the job to work and take care of it. Those words, I know you're dying to know this if you're a nerd like me, those words are priestly words to work and take care of it. These are, these, it's used of the work of the priests in the Jewish temple. Later on, we read these same words. So get this, God has created a garden in the middle of the world, which functions as a sort of temple, Right? It's a place where God and humans dwell together. They walk together, and he plants Adam and Eve, basically a pair of priests in this garden to represent him to the world. So uh, this is so good, guys. Okay, so let's recap so far what the good news of Jesus starts with. God creating the world. He creates these image bearers. He gives them work to do. That's kingly langu language, right? Then he creates a couple of people through a special process and plants them in a garden to take care of it. That's priestly language. Makes sense? So here's the million dollar question. How well do they do? It takes all of two chapters to mess this up. And then there's some kind of talking snake and there apparently there's this magic fruit you just can't resist. And there's fig leaves and all kinds of stuff. And all of a sudden, instead of shalom and flourishing and this beauty, now there's the entrance of sin and spiritual death and separation from God and the ripples of just, I mean, Genesis 4 through 11, just the ripples of violence and murder and awfulness all throughout creation. And so you're left wondering, well, God, okay, what are you going to do now that this whole Adam and Eve project has gone belly up? So what does he do? Well, after a few years, he calls another man and another woman, Abraham and Sarah. Have we heard this story before? He, he tells them to go get a piece of land that he has set aside for them, <laughs> right? 
So this is cycling back to the Eden narrative, but now we're in a fallen world. And he gives them a promise. What does he say? The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I'm setting it aside. I will make you into a great nation. That's Israel. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed. What? Through you. So Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve exist for the blessing of the nations, Israel exists for the blessing of the nations. How well do they do? Yeah, not so great, right? God, gives, God they, they end up in 400 years of slavery. God rescues them from Egypt. He takes them to a mountain. We just talked about this in our last series. He takes them to this mountain. He gives them some commandments and a job description. Oh, and I wonder if this job description will sound much like uh, the job description he gave to Adam and Eve. Spoiler alert, Yes. Exodus 19, we just looked at this a couple of weeks ago. God says, you yourselves have seen how I've rescued you. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my commandment, then out of all the nations, you'll be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a what? Kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So we're back to king and priesthood language again. So, so the intention of the first humans is here's land, now export, expand the borders of Shalom as kings and priests. That didn't work. So here's Israel. You're to be my people. My, king, my kingship is going to be manifested through you now. You're the kings and priests. And, and how do they do? Nope. Within 40 days, they're worshiping a golden calf that they came up with, right? So not so great. Not great, these humans, so far. Later on in the story, these guys finally get to the promised land, and God is their their king, he's their ruler, and they demand a human king to rule them. We talked about this in last year's Allegiance series. Which, <clears throat> this is awful because God, Yahweh, was their king. And, and they just want to be like all the other nations because all the other nations are doing it, so we have to, right? Well, Israel, if all the other nations jump off a cliff, are you going to? I guess so, right? Because kids. God says to them, all right, pick yourself a king. Pick out a king. Knock yourself out. They fail at it. Their first king they pick stinks. And so God chooses one himself. He chooses King David. And he says, okay, David, I'm going to turn your reign into a dynasty. He says this in 2 Samuel 7. The Lord declares to you, he's talking to David here, the Lord, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. That's a dynasty or a lineage. It's a dynasty. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I'll raise up your offspring, Solomon to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house, that's the temple, uh, for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In verse 16, he says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Okay, so there's this expectation that finally the kings of Israel, they would now walk closely with Yahweh. They're going to rule Israel the way, you know, that, that brought shalom, that brought flourishing, and lead the people back to the worship of the one true God and be an example for all the nations. How do they do? Not even remotely well. It is, it, in fact, it gets so bad, so horrific, so idolatrous, that there is a civil war, and the kingdom gets split in half, and with a hundred years of each other, each half of the kingdom gets carried off in exile to some other far-off pagan land. It's just the worst. In Ezekiel, we, read, uh, we get a picture of Yahweh leaving. He actually, his presence leaves the temple because it's so corrupt. So the question becomes again, now that the Israel project has failed God, now that the chosen instrument to bring flourishing to the world itself is corrupted, what will God do? What will he do now? 
And so then we start to get these glimpses in the prophets. And again, we're so close to being fulfilled. Have I gone way over my 10 minutes already? Promise. I was very ambitious with that. I'm sorry. Okay. It's taking longer. Uh, But relief is here. It's coming. It's really close. Hang in there. Like the cat poster. Hang in there. So there are glimpses we get in the Old Testament prophets where the prophets would anticipate a day when, when Yahweh would come back. He would truly be king over his people and he would restore Israel. And he would begin to put the nations back in order. The prophets start declaring this. And so Isaiah speaks of this. Isaiah 40 through like 66 is just one of the most beautiful spans uh, these chapters, just uh, passages ever written. It speaks about this new exodus that is going to take place, delivering Israel out of their exile. And it talks about the suffering servant who will come suffer on behalf of Israel to redeem it. In Isaiah 40, it begins like this. The prophet says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Now, this is after 39 chapters of here's why you're in exile in Babylon, okay? Uh, Now, chapter 40 is like, okay, now there's comfort. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And the prophet sees a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Saying, spread the news. God is coming back. Prepare the road for him. Back then, when an emperor would come to a city, many times they would go ahead of and prepare the road. They would clean up the highway and get things ready here. So that's that's the image here. Jerusalem, get ready. Yahweh's coming back. So spruce up the highway, lower the mountains, raise the valleys, make everything nice and easy and level. Verse 5, it says, the glory of the Lord of that day will be revealed. We, the people, will see it together. Can you hear the, the yearning? For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Later in verse 9, he says, you who bring good news to Zion, go up to a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here's your God. He's coming. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. He rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. Ah, Here's how Malachi, this is the last book in our Old Testament. Here's how Malachi says it in chapter three. He says, I will send, so this is the way the Old Testament ends for us. I will send my messenger, says the Lord, who will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will come back to his temple and the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. Okay, you've hung with me for like 15 minutes maybe? Thank you. You guys rock. You've done it. Um, I want to take a few more minutes and just bring some clarity to all this. A couple of things I want us to notice. First, the Old Testament, did you notice, it doesn't end with God asking, gee, how am I going to get all these people to heaven when they die? That doesn't seem to be like anyone's concern. The Old Testament ends with Israel asking, when will God come back to us? When will God return to his temple and take his rightful place as king? When will he fulfill this project that he started with Adam and Eve and this project of, that continued in Israel, right, of putting the world back together the way he intends it to be? That is how the Old Testament ends with a promise that God will return and that ahead of God will come a messenger. All right, so back to Mark. So Mark opens his gospel with, hey, here's Jesus, the Son of God. And he quotes from Isaiah and Malachi. Why does he do that? 
because he's telling us it's here. The promised time is here. The thing we've longing for for thousands of years is here. And Mark even summarizes the story of John the Baptist, the messenger who was promised in Malachi. He says in verse 14, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the what? The good news of God. That's the gospel of the king, right? The time has come. Now, when he says that, what time is he talking about? What time is he meaning? The time of Isaiah and the time of Malachi. That time has come. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. So now we understand when you're a first century Jewish person and you're hearing John the Baptist or Jesus proclaim these words, now, you, now you're feeling what they're feeling. Now guys, when we talk about the kingdom of God, this is the promise that the whole 2,000 year summary of history we just, we just quoted here. That was Israel's hope. This is their hunger, that Yahweh would come back as king over the world, not just through delegates, but he himself, Yahweh himself, and that he would come and he would form this community who would renew the world. And their hope and their expectation for all of this, they would call the kingdom of God. We, we sometimes sum up the kingdom of God like this, that the kingdom of God is God's will and his way finally being manifest in the world today. So in the presence of King Jesus, uh, Yahweh the king has come. That is the announcement. That's the good news. And then he says, repent and believe this. Repent and believe this. Well, that's interesting. Okay, now we're getting to the really big idea, okay? This is why you're here this morning. Again, when I was in Sunday school as a little boy, I was told that you pray a prayer and you accept Jesus in your heart and you get a ticket to heaven. And some of that turns out to actually be true. Uh, so that's good news. But it's fascinating that Jesus or the, or the Bible or the Gospels never talked about him this way or with that announcement. Jesus never says, I have come so that you may go to heaven after you die. He never says that. He's, he always says, I am carrying with me. I am carrying the kingdom of heavens with me to you. I am the bearer of the kingdom of heaven, right? So the direction here is, is really important for us to get. I grew up thinking that all God wants to do is get me out of this wicked world. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. God actually wants to renew it. He's looking for partners who are willing to reorient their whole perspective on, toward life and to, to believe that this Jesus is is the agent of renewal the world is crying out for, that he is God as king, come in the flesh, and that God really is as beautiful as Jesus reveals him to be. God really is this beautiful. That is the invitation. Now, does that include a, a quick, quick trip to, to heaven before we come back to earth? Yeah, for those of us who die first, so that's cool. Um, does praying a prayer in your heart, it, you know, is that a big deal? Sure. But notice, Mark doesn't let us off the hook when he has Jesus saying, repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. Because instantly we find out the very next verse what repentance looks like, what re belief looks like. And it's more, it turns out to be more than just a prayer you recite. Immediately after this, this happens. Verse 16, as Jesus walked along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake. For they were fishermen. Come, Follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. <clears throat> so, uh, so get this, Jesus, in the same way that uh, God was gathered the Adam and Eve community, in the same way then the Israel community, he's gathering together. Jesus comes and he gathers a new community. He's gathering a new community. We know it as the church. 
okay? And he's going to give them a priestly and a kingly vocation too later on in the story. But for now, what does it look like? What was this invitation to this community he's gathering? What did repent and believe look like? At once they left their nets and followed him. It wasn't have a new set of opinions and some new thoughts. It was drop what you were doing and come follow me. Walk in my steps. See, guys, we have turned following Jesus into some sort of weird, like, mystical, religious thing when discipleship is like the most natural, unspooky thing there is. It's being a disciple. Being a disciple is, is, is following somebody, following the teaching of somebody, and we are all disciples of somebody. I would say that all of us are disciples of somebody. A disciple is just a student. So let's say you want to learn calculus. I don't know why, but good on you, right? I have so much, Mr. Terry, his brain is just so much bigger than I can imagine. He, he's a calculus professor. Oh my goodness. Uh, so if you want to be a student, if you want to learn calculus, what do you do? You, you're going to be a student of, of a teacher. You're going to go to Mr. Terry and be like, explain this esoteric thing to me that I don't understand. And the goal of your studentness would be to do the things that your teacher could do that you cannot do, right? Well, that's pretty obvious. Let's say you want to learn how to cook French cuisine. Mm. Yes, you would go to a chef, right? You would go to the chef, or nowadays you'd go on YouTube, and you'd pull up all these videos about, you know, what, what the French chefs are doing. You would apprentice yourself, you become a student of, of a teacher of cooking, someone who has mastered cooking, and then you try to do it, right? You're watching the screen, and you're like, okay, let's add that. Okay, I can do that, right? You would try to do what they do, but you can't yet. That's why you're learning. That's, that's a disciple. That's a disciple. So if you want to learn what the new creation is like, you apprentice yourself to its bearer, Jesus. If you want to learn to forgive your enemies, if you want to learn how to love your neighbor, you just become a student of Jesus. And it's not just some mystical in your heart or like believe hard enough kind of thing. It's what humans do when they want to learn something. You learn to do what the, the master does. And so Mark's point is saying this is the Son of God and he invites everybody who hears the good news to just follow. And what does follow mean? What does follow mean? Follow doesn't, we get the idea again that we kind of over-spiritualize it. We get the idea that follow is, is to uh, recite passages by heart, if I learn enough passages, or memorize the creed, right? Or I'm, I'm really going to like prove how, you know, on board I am. I'm going to go to seminary so I can learn it in the Greek. Um, but follow means reconsider the whole way you live. It means the, the way you live in light of the fact that the kingdom is coming. It, it's really not that terribly complicated, but for some fascinating reason, we've made following Jesus just so esoteric and so spiritual, it's lost all actual meaning. So, so the, as a consequence, when the people of the world look at the actual minute-by-minute minute lives that we live, most of us don't look that different from the world. We look like functional atheists. We don't actually look like we live differently. We think different thoughts, and we take all of our pride in that. Like, I got the right opinions about stuff. But we don't look any different like the way we live, right? So when Jesus says something, what do we do? I mean, I'm, I'm talking to myself. I'm guilty of this. We'll, we'll study it to death. <laughs> but we, actually, we rarely act, do we actually do it. 
He says, do this, and we study it, but we don't do it. It'd be like if me telling my son, Mason, who's 15, I said, Mason, go clean your room. And I imagine, imagine if Macy came back to me and he was like, Dad, guess what? I memorized what you said. He said, go clean your room, just like that. Right? I memorized it. Not, Dad, not only that, I grabbed a small group of friends together, and we have been studying what it would mean, what it would look like to live in a clean room. It's been amazing. Right? The spirit of Dad was there the whole time. Mm. What would you do as a parent, right? Jesus has this great line in the book of Luke. He's like, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? <laughs> right? He's, he's, you can tell he's just having a parent moment there. That's what I would do. Like, why do you call me dad and not do what I say? Just go clean the room. So Jesus says, love your enemy. And the church says, oh, that's optional. We'll study that. We're going to look at that in the original languages, Right? But when it comes to loving somebody with unpopular opinions on social media, eh, or loving somebody in my neighborhood who's annoying, well, or loving that person at work, that's optional, right? To follow Jesus, literally, Jesus literally means not just to pray a prayer at summer camp when we were eight and, and have nothing to do with him for the rest of our lives. What kind of invitation is that? Jesus did not need to like be incarnated. God come in the flesh, this miracle that doesn't even make sense. God come in the flesh. He wouldn't need to do that and then live this life in the dust with us for 33 years and then get crucified horribly on a cross. He wouldn't need to do all that to just to teach us how to pray the salvation prayer. He could have wrote that down. To follow Jesus means you follow in the footsteps of Jesus. You become his student. We apprentice ourselves to him. And yeah, we're going to do it way imperfectly. We're going to do it under grace completely. But you begin to learn to do the things he did. So the good news message, the good news message that we read over and over, it's not about getting you into heaven. It's about getting heaven into you. Think about his prayer. What's the prayer? When they asked him, how do we pray? He literally says this. Okay, I'll tell you how to pray in Matthew 6. What does he say? He says, this is how you pray. Father in the heavens, may your name be hallowed. May God, may your kingdom come. And what does that mean? What does it mean for his kingdom to come? Well, it's really simple. When his will is done on earth as in heaven, that's his kingdom coming. When his will is done. See, the whole point of spirituality for lots of people is just spent looking forward to heaven and getting out of here. And I don't know how we missed it. I don't know how I missed it Uh, because Jesus so blatantly says, no, 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 your goal is to bring the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, King Jesus in the heavens here in this life, in real life, as you drive and live and and eat and and play and work and date and marry and all that. Your whole life is the arena for the kingdom of heavens to come, not just your religious Sunday morning life, not just your sinful life, all of it, the whole thing. Because you are bearers of new creation. We're bearers of new creation. That's our role as disciples. Like, why, why do you think, why do we come here? You ever ask yourself that? I, I'm always curious. Like, why do people take time? I know why I come here. Like, I have to be here this morning, right? I mean, I couldn't just, like, this morning go, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'll preach or not. But why do people take time out? Why do you take time out for this, like, singing and preaching event? It's so weird, right? On a Sunday morning, it's, it's nice outside. Uh, there's 
there's a lot of other things to do. There's restaurants out there right now serving brunch. Brunch, people! It's happening now! Why does this matter? Is it just a cultural hangover? We just can't seem to kick? Um, is it like God thinks it's super important and we'll get in trouble if we don't? Are we doing this for self-improvement so I can be my best self? Is that why you're here? Are we just trying to keep your kids off the street? Right? From, from the perspective of the scriptures, this right here is, is a dress rehearsal of new creation. We're rehearsing it. You're here gathered with people that you actually aren't all that like, right? I would dare say you wouldn't go and normally find everybody in this room and go try to be their best friend if you just saw them on the street. You're actually not like a lot of people in here, right? You're, you're sitting really close to people who disagree with you about like really important opinions. They hold different opinions, but we're united at this common table of spiritual food. That's what we're doing. We're refreshing. This morning, what did we do in our worship? We're refreshing our imagination with lyrics and songs that we sing, reminding ourselves of the truth of his kingship, right? And we're being reminded of things that we already know. I mean, come on, most of this is not new for you, right? Why? Because new creation space doesn't come naturally to us. New creation space isn't what's out there around every corner. Old creation is everywhere. It's actually ingrained itself in our brains and our daily habits so much so that we, so we have decided we have to be reminded of this at least weekly to come together. And so this is dress rehearsal. We're at dress rehearsal, right? You and I are a bunch of imperfect, in-process people learning how to be God's agents of new creation. That's what we do. And, and central to that practice, one of the most beautiful ways that we celebrate that is the Lord's Supper, which is what we're going to do now. If you have your elements, you can get those ready. Um, if you didn't get one when you walked in, uh, there's some at the back of the, uh, over on the table there, or in the back over here, there's some communion elements. If you're watching by live stream, you're welcome to do this with us. Just grab some, some bread and some juice. Uh, guys, this is not just a crackers and grape juice ritual, what we're doing here. This right here is the embodiment of the invitation of Jesus. See, we don't do this. The point of this isn't so, so we can come and we look at it and admire it and debate. Like, I wonder if, like, is the body and the blood of Jesus, like, physically in the cracker and juice? Or is it, like, constantiation or whatever the word? No, no, that's not the point. The point is to take and eat, and to follow in his steps. It's a, it's a symbolic act of you and I sharing the open table of discipleship. Amen? So as you get your elements here, I want to pray for us this morning. Um, and in just a minute, we get to do something priceless. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together as brothers and sisters who aren't all that similar in some ways. But this is a, I want you to really see this. This is a spiritual, political, cultural, public declaration we make, right? 
This is our declaration of allegiance to the kingdom of God and the one who sits on its throne, Jesus Christ. That is what we do here, and this is our commitment to the unity of this tribe together. So, so if you will, just bow your heads if you like, and, and I just want to pray for us as we apprentice ourselves to this Jesus. Hallelujah. Lord, I thank you so much for your grace, for the invitation to the Lord's table this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to say yes. Thank you for the, the work that you have done to clear the way for us so, so there's no barriers or fences between you and us. I thank you, Lord, that anyone who calls on your name will be rescued and saved. And God, we want to enter into the fullness of that salvation, not just the religious part of us or the sinful part of us or the go to heaven when we die promise, Lord God. But Lord, for many of us, we are so compelled by how Jesus lived, how he was human in the world. We want to learn how to be like that. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come, that you would fill us and renew us daily. Help us to to talk and to walk more like our Christ. So Heavenly Father, we bless you and we take the bread and the cup together in solidarity with each other in allegiance to our King. And now, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us. Forgive us our sins that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Friends, the body of Christ broken for you. Thank you for your healing, Lord. The blood of Christ shed for you. Thank you, Lord, for your salvation. Mm. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord God, for the way you have knit our hearts together so that we can be the body of Christ in the world today. Help us to represent you well, Lord. May we represent you well, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Well, praise God. If you will, stand to your feet with me today as I'm going to bless you in just a minute. Our prayer partners are coming forward. If there's anything at all you need prayer about, if there's sickness in your body you want them to pray with you about, if there's a need you have, a miracle you need, a financial miracle, maybe a restoration of, of a relationship in your life that just needs, it needs God's miracle. There, there might be somebody that, you, you, there's just tension there and, and you've done all you can and you need God to do a miracle. God is here and the Lord can help restore relationships. It's all about relationships, hallelujah. And if you want to say yes to Jesus, today for the first time. Or maybe you have just been really far from God for a long time and you know it and you're like, ah, I want Jesus. I need to apprentice myself to this Jesus who comes to me, not in condemnation, but in love. His arms are open in love. I invite you to come forward and let some of these people just pray with you. They would love to lead you in that next step. Amen. So my brothers and sisters, let me bless you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift his countenance and pour out his mercy in this day that we're living in. Amen. Let's go be kingdom people out there. Grace and peace to you. Thank you.